Cut, and this is the K Cut. James here. I'm a content creator. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Preferred Say podcast, and my expertise on the show is no budget cinema. I'm Rachel. I love classic film, silent film, international cinema, and lost movies. I write for Film Fatale as well, and I am deep into Oscar season. I'm Andreas. I'm the creator and one of the writers over at Films Fatale. I love international and art house cinema, but I also love a little bit of everything in between. And uh, dear listeners, first off, thank you. It's been a while. Uh, we took a nice, much-needed break during the holidays. We are back when we're refreshed. Uh, secondly, um, get ready for some award season goodness in a couple of weeks' time. You know exactly what we're talking about. And thirdly, um, back to some other regularly scheduled programming. It's that time again. So, this is another edition of the Cinematic Smorgasbord, one of our favorite series on this podcast. And for newcomers, what exactly is that? Well, once a month, what we do is we give each other films to watch that we have never seen. And as we have introduced ourselves, uh, you can tell that we have a lot of crossover appeal, but we also like quite different things. So... Uh, we generally do a really good job of figuring out films that the other co-host will like that we've never seen before. Additionally, in the second act of the episode, I'm not going to call it a half because you never know. Sometimes we like to discuss some films more than others. Um, in the second part of the episode, uh, we have a collective pick, a film that all three of us have yet to see that we all have watched for this month. So, uh... Later on in this episode, we will be discussing the fantastic Golden Age film, uh, the two-and-a-half-hour-long, comedic, zany, theatrical, epic, anti-mame. I so, have so many opinions, you guys. So many opinions. <laughs> and I think anti-mame herself has a lot of opinions. Uh, that's basically what the entire film is about, uh, and I say that with uh, pure love. So uh, stay tuned for our anti-mame discussion. Otherwise, we're going to get into... The conversation surrounding all of our individual picks. So each co, each co-host has recommended a film for the other co-host, and we'll find out what those are shortly. So who wants to go with their findings first? I'll go first. Okay, what were you recommended, and by whom? So we went with James's patron saint of Harmony Corinne, and that was Mister Lonely, which I keep calling Mister Nobody, even though that's a totally different movie. And Mr. Lonely is about a guy who's a Michael Jackson impersonator, played by Diego Luna, and he connects with a community of people who just impersonate celebrities all the time. So you've got a Marilyn Monroe who's married to a Charlie Chaplin, they have a Shirley Temple who's their child, and there's a queen and a pope and a bunch of other people, and they all live in this little community. And they're trying to put on a show that will entice people to come and see them. There's also a storyline with some nuns, but to be honest, I never figured out how that fit in the movie. I didn't really like it, and that was kind of the downside. But the main storyline is really interesting. It's very much in Harmony Corinne's chosen family theme, which he always explores. And it's very validating and also tremendously sad, because on the one hand, they're finding their community, but on the other hand, they're not really finding their own identities. And I think the film is really exploring that. And yes, the ending did make me cry. Yeah, uh, I mainly picked this one because I, I would I just had this assumption that you would find the idea of impersonators fascinating. I did, Espe especially with the specific characters that were chosen to be impersonated. Mm -hmm. 
because that that was uh that was the thing I found interesting. Like Diego Luna as Michael Jackson was very interesting, and I think he was an interviewer. Harmony said that he did it on purpose to kind of obscure. It's like you know he didn't want to find somebody. You know, he didn't want to find like a black or white actor. He wanted to like let's get something completely different, and he and that was the first person he thought of. So it's like having a Hispanic person play Michael is just you know definitely throws things off of the norm. Uh, it's disappointing though because they couldn't get the rights to any Michael Jackson music for the movie. Oh yeah, yeah, I noticed that. So there there was none, but it's obviously that wouldn't happen for you know some sort of indie art house flick. And Luna hadn't really broken out at that time, had he? Diego Luna? Yeah, I don't think he was really... Was that before or after Itu Mama Tambien? Uh, I think after. But he hadn't done Milk yet, and that's the first movie I noticed him in. Which, both of those movies came out the same year. Mr. Lily and Milk. So, yeah, I I really enjoy this film, mainly because it definitely... He plays to his strengths in focusing on communities, which is... One of the main reasons I think the beach bum fell apart was because he decided to go with a singular character narrative oh, and as opposed to the community worst. narrative. That's not his strength. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's just, I don't know what's fascinating because you get this kind of like, just this really group of interesting individuals that are, have this common goal. But at the same time, it's like, you know, their community is also, it, it's they have a strong bond, but it's also fragile in some areas. And there's so much pain underneath it. Oh yeah, definitely. It's yeah. I don't. It's it's one of these movies. I I often cited in his filmography as one of those. It just sort of stands on its own. Like every director seems to have like one movie where it just it doesn't really fall in line with everything else, but it's very much them. Mm-hmm. It's like one thing that comes into mind. Like it was like a uh, Andreas when you recommended. Um, oh, what did you recommend to Rachel? Scorsese. What was it called? After hours. Oh, after, after oh, hours. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. I don't know why I blanked on that, but yeah, something like that where it just kind of it. It's in its own category, or like I think of Christopher Nolan's The Prestige. I think that's kind of in a separate category as opposed to like the rest of his filmography. I get what you mean. So yeah, it was also um, he hadn't made a film, and I think the last film he did was a Julian Donkey Boy, which came out in '99. And in between this movie and Julian Donkey Boy, it's like you know he had dealt with like you know drug addiction and all these things, and he was just kind of out of it and didn't want to be a part of the industry anymore. And then he just kind of comes back, and uh, it's also interesting because he he claims that this was inspired by a short period of time where him and his family actually lived in a commune. Okay, and I mean I don't know the validity of it, but it, it kind of makes sense because he wrote it with his brother. So I don't know if there was a, like if they had this actual real life experience, and I guess like his dad was a filmmaker, and like I don't know if it was like for public access television or like a news station or something like that. But he would always like I guess document the lives of like really interesting individuals. So I guess it kind of like crept over into his art. But yeah, I, I think it's just just the size of the movie. It's like you you don't really get something so endearing with a concept like that. I will agree though. I enjoyed it, but the whole thing. So there's this whole side story with skydiving nuns that makes absolutely no sense, and it doesn't fit. I don't mind two separate storylines if they have the same theme or they connect in some way or there's something unifying them. But it just seemed like two different movies pushed together. I, yeah, wow. On its own, the skydiving nuns is just act. I mean, the footage of it is just absolutely breathtaking. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't help the story at all. No, I think he could have like picked one. Yeah, I wonder if he's like obsessed with like Antonioni, like a 
blow up for instance where there's a lot of like asides in that sort of a film as well except Antonio is a much more graceful filmmaker whereas Harmony Korine's much very much in your face and I feel like his vignettes let's call them sometimes really work like in uh, Gummo I feel like they do and sometimes they really fall flat could be yeah I, I, that makes sense but uh yeah I didn't cry at the ending but you might especially because like the ending is there's a musical number one word eggs uh, oh yeah yes mm-hmm. uh, the same song was used in the handmaid's tale for a very sad scene so that was probably why oh I've never seen the handmaid's mm-hmm. tale so yeah so, so overall what did you think I liked it and I thought it was good not my favorite of all time but it was a good pick cool um well uh i'll go next uh with what i was recommended by you rachel um because i kind of want to save james yours for last because i'm both anticipating and dreading what's to come and listeners will see why shortly um let's have a bit of fun first so uh with the pick you gave me rachel i'm always game for a new satire or a new screwball now let me let me be frank they don't really make screwball comedies anymore. So when I say new, I mean new to me. So things of, of yesteryear that I have yet to see. And uh, that's exactly what I got in the form of um, Jack Arnold. Uh, Jack Arnold is a director who's known for a lot of like sci-fi um, stuff. Like Creature from the Black Lagoon was like the only thing of his that I've, I'd ever seen before. And I saw that when I was really young and I was obsessed with that stuff. But he's also done a lot of other sci-fi things, which a lot of B pictures or Z pictures are inspired by. So it's interesting that he had this um, comedy aside called The Mouse That Roared, which stars Peter Sellers and Peter Sellers and Peter Sellers, which is basically typical for Peter Sellers. And uh, one Gene Seberg, actually before John Luke Godard's Breathless, which was astonishing to me because I've seen stuff of hers before, obviously Breathless and stuff afterwards, but nothing like before Breathless. So that was interesting to see what she was like before that breakthrough performance when she was a fish out of water over in France. She was still an ingenue at that point. Yeah, so... um, the Mouse that Roared, how do I explain this one? So, um, I'm never good when it comes to explaining politics and all these things, but what I will say to simplify it so I don't uh, erroneously say, state anything that's you know not actually accurate, um, we do have, um, I guess it's called a duchy, which uh, I don't actually know what that is, but a European duchy. It's a small country that's ruled by a grand duke or a duke. So uh, ah. I think uh, Luxembourg is currently a duchy, but uh, no, no, or was it like one, one of the very small countries of Europe is currently a duchy? And this is my plug. Uh, check out our uh, our resident ge- geog- geographical expert here, Rachel's uh, World of Movies column, because clearly thank I'm you. not equipped for it. <laughs> but uh, yeah. uh, thank you. Uh, so we have a European duchy called uh, Grand Fedwick which is completely broke, and uh, they are in a position where they have to surrender over to the United States. Um, But they come up with this harebrained scheme where it's like, why don't we go to war with the United States? And they can't really do that because they don't really have the means. Their military is 12 middle-aged guys in really, really crappy armor. But that's the thing. So it's not even just about going to war and winning. They purposely go to war with the intention of losing so uh, they can 
earn money that way and not, you know, not lose everything. They're basically, if my understanding and memory is correct, they're taken over. And as a result, money is put back into the duchy. So... Yeah, it's a parody of the Marshall Plan, which came after World War II, and it was where your um, Americans gave a ton of money to Europe to restore the countries they had defeated, and that way Europe would be on their side for a long time, and also the countries would get rebuilt. Yeah, so in this plan, you brought it up before, um, they pick like a dozen, literally like a dozen, um, inept soldiers, uh, give them chain mail i think and send them over to the states they send them over to the states with no chance in hell so uh again peter sellers plays three different people including the uh, prime minister who comes up with this awful plan uh the duchess herself is also played by peter sellers uh, basically queen victoria <laughs> and uh then uh the uh, one of the soldiers who kind of takes the lead of the little squad is played by Peter Sellers. So the prime minister, Peter Sellers is, um, let's say not as smart as he thinks he is, but he's a little bit devious. I've uh, comes up with schemes. The, uh, the Duchess, Peter Sellers is very quiet. And I think that's for the best. Otherwise the illusion would be given away. <laughs> and then the, uh, the soldier, Peter Sellers is a complete idiot, but with a, a heart of gold and the, the hilarity of the film comes in the form of uh, this little squad, can't even call them an army, they're like a, a troop, actually striving to, to succeed and going against the initial plans because they actually do pretty well over a, you know, a hilarious scenario after hilarious scenario. So uh, the backfiring is where the real comedy comes in. And it's rooted in real stuff, you know. I didn't realize until after I'd assigned this to you that it was from that all-important year of 1959, which I have promoted again and again on this podcast as a pivotal year in American cinema, because it was shattering all these taboos of the 1950s. And that includes nuclear stuff. And fears of nuclear war play a very big part in this movie. Ah, yes, in the form of a football... <laughs> okay, uh, uh, American football-shaped... Um... Uh, like a atomic bomb, uh, which is uh, quite honestly like the pivotal um, plot device of the entire film. And and my goodness, yeah, I guess there's a statement on uh, the threat or uh, lack thereof of nuclear war in that symbolism alone. Mm-hmm. So, what'd you think? Yeah, I thought it was a uh, I thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, two films came to mind throughout, um, for sure. For sure, uh, Doctor Strange Love or How I Stop Wor- How I Stop Worrying and Learn to Love the Bomb, mm-hmm. um, which actually came after this film. Yeah, and about five co- years after. I think this movie walked so Strange Love could run. Yeah, and it's not a foreign concept that Peter Sellers has done multiple characters before. That's kind of his shtick, being able to have all these different personas. But um, this one was specifically like a prime minister figure or uh, an inept soldier or, okay, there's no duchess in um, Dr. Strangelove, but like these different, (laughs) these different figures that are again, so starkly different. I feel like there was a lot of similarities, especially with how goofy it treats uh, wartime, a very serious subject and, um, and setting, but uh, Strangelove obviously is like I would argue the greatest satire of all time, wartime or not. Um, 
so yeah, I would agree with the fact that uh, this film walked so that one could run. Um, additionally, and uh, I'll be happy to know that you'll catch this reference. Um, this reminded me a lot of Kind Hearts of Coronets with what yes. Alec Guinness was doing and uh, the commentary of uh, prestige and how um, there is no prestige or prestige, which I thought was great. It's not as dark as Kind Hearts of Coronets, but like for sure the multiple character thing, um, the dark humor approach for sure some some similarities i wouldn't rank it as highly as either of those uh or amongst my favorite comedies ever but as a peter sellers fan it's not discussed enough i'll say that i'd agree it slept on a little yeah so i would say it's uh not gonna blow your mind or make you reassess film but if you're looking for a good time and just a good laugh and a very painfully self-aware narrator which was honestly my favorite comedy (laughs) throughout the entire film um yeah the mouse that roared is actually a pretty underseen film well i'm glad you enjoyed it i did i i had some fun with it um and that leads us to the segue, uh, a film that you're not necessarily supposed to have fun with, although <laughs> I'm not entirely sure whatsoever what this response is going to be like. Um, I'll just give a bit of an intro before you continue, James. I selected this film for James because it was just selected by the critics of Sight and Sound as the greatest film of all time. What did you watch, James? Haha, <laughs> so I'm going to say the American version of this title because I'm not I'm not trying to butcher that language. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> uh, Jean Duman, 23 Commerce Quay, 1080 Brussels by Chantal Ackerman. What, what did you think? I'm kind of hesitating to ask because this could either be a new masterpiece in your eyes or you're going to be like, Andreas, please die. Like, I don't know what I'm what I'm going to be expecting here. All righty. So I have mixed feelings. Okay. I didn't love this film, but I didn't hate this film. Okay. And for the audience out there, this film is a very simple film. It is a slice of life movie that observes a widowed housewife over the course of three days. Watching this film... It did a couple things. One, I, I understood the film completely. I knew what it was trying to do. And, you know, there is no denying that Chantal Ackerman is a master of cinema. And she was 25 when she made this. You know, it's funny. It's funny when people talk about ages of directors because in the 70s, that was common. It's true. And it's, it, it's even more interesting because it's like you could just sort of happen upon film. For some reason, like it was a also the also her being from a different country also kind of plays a role because I think this film was actually funded by the government, if I remember correctly. Okay. Like there was there was some grant that she got for this. Yeah, in other countries, I found in European countries there are a lot of places where you can actually get grants to do film. It's very true. Like like government sponsored grants. It's really weird. Well, Canada uh, actually, works that way too, but we're getting off topic. <laughs> yeah. Now with this movie, it. It opened up for me a lot of conversations I have with myself and then ones that I kind of avoid having with other cinephiles. And one of them is in regards to runtime. Now, this show contains two hosts that live on opposite sides of the spectrum. Andreas is a champion of long films. If I think, it deserves I th- it. <laughs> I think they can be shorter. This one, 
I will say uh, there's two things. One, I don't think it justified its runtime, but the runtime was necessary. I understand that. So to give more context to the listener at home as to why that dichotomy might exist, um, this is a film, like you said, it's very basic. It's about uh, a widow who, and you watch her daily life. But what happens is you're watching a woman confined to her home and basically not really given a life to live. Um, You watch her do basic tasks like cooking, cleaning, um, other personal hobbies that she has. Uh, She also partakes in uh, in sex work as well. Um, Basically, she has been banished and forbidden by society into this confined life. And she has no story. She has no narrative. She has no rhythm or anything this is what she's been confined to and uh she abides by it for a lot of the film as the film progresses something seems a little bit off like her um her synergy with cooking is a little bit off like she'll almost hurt herself cutting a vegetable or she'll like have to redo something because something's a little bit not quite as it should be she slowly gets more and more off her game until we get to the um, the very ending of the film, which is the climax and the last, like, literally, like, 30 seconds, um, which I dare not spoil. It all leads to something, uh, a very poignant feminist message. But to your point, this film is well over three hours. It's three and a half, if I'm not mistaken, correct? So, to your point... You're supposed to feel like it's 10 hours. You're supposed to be like, my God, this is not ending because you're empathizing with her as a human being and what her entire life consists of. Having said that, my goodness, do you feel the runtime? And that's not everyone's favorite cup of tea when it comes to this film. Oh, yeah, I felt the runtime. And like I said, I think it's like, like I said, it's like I don't have anything bad, but nothing extraordinary to say about it. I think it occupies a very specific place in film history and functions as a very specific work with a very specific creative. Like I, I, I recommend it. This is something that I watched from more of an academic lens than as opposed to being entertained. Or like artistically as well, like as an artistic statement, what is this saying? Like you're not enjoying this, but you can understand what Chantal Ackerman is getting to is getting at. You're not watching Gene Dealman for funsies. Oh god. No. Oh, unless you are, but which that's fine. But yeah. There was a phrase a journalist coined for this about 10 years ago, and it was eating your cultural vegetables. And so you do it for your own growth and not necessarily because you enjoy it. Yeah, I think it's a very important film. Um, I will say this, and I'm a big champion of this film. I consider it one of the best of the 70s, one of the best uh, female-directed films of all time, one of the best feminist films. In fact, arguably the greatest feminist film of all time. I sympathize and understand people who are upset with Sight and Sound's top ranking, not because this film doesn't deserve love, but because this is a tough film to consider the greatest of all time when really it's um, very much an antithesis of cinema in general and not necessarily why people watch films. It's a big change to the comfort levels that people have and it's a very important film i would argue one of the most important films especially of the art house movement or experimental movements to watch but when it comes to how people understand film 
this is not typically what people think of when they get to that. So, um, like like you said, you get why it exists. I, I'm guessing you appreciate having seen it, but I don't know if it sounds like you'll ever get around to ever watching it again. So, this is the interesting, and I was actually going to bring up the sight and sound thing as my second point. Okay. Now, I think I think the, there's a very serious conversation I have with myself. Whenever we see these top lists, are these actually good, or is the acclaim convincing us they're good? Mm. But also, this isn't a coincidence. This is similar to the top 500 Rolling Stones greatest album list to me. Okay. Now, think about what they did there. The album they picked. Marvin Gaye. What's going on? That album is not one you listen to for funsies. It's a very important work, and it's a great work, too. But there was a statement made with that, and it was it's very reflective of the times. I don't think it's a coincidence they picked a starkly feminist work from a legendary female director for the top of this list. Now, it did the similar thing that the Rolling Stone 500 did, though. Because for the longest time, the number two film was Pet Sounds. And it remained number two. For this, what film's number two that constantly flip-flops the number one and two spot? Uh, Vertigo. Vertigo. Yes. Which is so establishment. Yeah. So that's why I always say it's like the number one pick, depending on where the time period you're doing it, it's a pick for the times. I think when they do this list again, it'll probably change. I just want the energy of esteemed Canadian filmmaker Michael Snow, who just died at 94, and his selections were his favorite movie and three of his own films, and I need that in my life. <laughs> uh, rest in peace, Michael Snow. Um, I'm gutted about that still. Um, I will say this, though. Uh, first off, I do listen to what's going on for funsies. I, I, I'm a bassist by heart, and James Jamerson is, is goaded as one of the best bassists of all time. So uh, there's that. i got to rephrase that. No, you, you can. <laughs> that's an album that you could just listen to anytime. I, oh, I think Because, like, me, Music's so different from film. And the other so. difference is Rolling Stone previously had it at fifth, I think, whereas Gene Dillman was like 30-something uh, on the 2012 Sight and Sound list. And it was never appearing on that list before. It was but, so out of nowhere. Exactly. I do recall, Rachel, you brought up when I recommended this film to James uh, privately with me, something else that somebody considered when it came to why this film was selected. I do not remember this conversation. It was last year. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, not entirely last year, but last year enough. Um, people identifying with the confinement of it and, uh, you know, the interiors yes, of one's household COVID. being a jailhouse like we have felt during the pandemic, for instance. That's right. Yeah. Uh, now, that did not come from me. I read it somewhere on Twitter. But yeah, I, I think that there's a valid point there. Yeah, absolutely. Like one of my favorite albums, speaking for talking about albums uh, of the last couple of years is uh, Fiona Apple's Fetch the Bolt Cutters. And that was like made entirely within her own house. And like some of the percussive instruments are like literally her banging on the drawers in her house. And um, there's just something very identifiable about that. So I'm sure that like Gene Dillman was not strictly just political. Like there's a lot of um, environmental... uh, identifiable aspects about it as well. But uh, I guess that's enough for uh, for Gene Dielman. It sounds like the, the consensus is you understand and respect the film, but it's not really your thing. Yeah. Well, also, I, I'm i very much against saying I respect something when it's not my thing because oh, I think that's just... That. I, no, oh, no, you're good. I just find that very backhanded. 
You're just okay. like, I respect it, but it's not for me. And it's like, just say you don't like it. <laughs> but with Gene Newman, it's literally like, I think I, I think it's rewarding it from an academic perspective, but you know, I, I'm curious to see the rest of her filmography, especially when I saw the runtimes and none of her other stuff is nearly that as long. long. Yeah. Her documentaries are very, um, very unique. Uh, finally, uh, one of the reasons why I recommended it to you is because I know you love like stripped down films and uh, things that take place in, you know, like one's domicile or, or setting. And I thought maybe uh, that was something you could appreciate as well. Oh yeah, I think I think what she did was very effective. I think it's just like I'm just in between. Like it, 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 it was. I don't regret watching it. I'll just say that. No, that's fair. That is fair. Well, uh, let's let's have uh, some more funsies, as you as you said. Um, a film that's also quite lengthy. It's two and a half hours or so. But yeah, I didn't realize that going in. <laughs> oh, it was not a problem. I'll say this. Um, it was. A lot of fun. What film? Because uh, you uh, selected it for us this this month, Rachel. What did you select us, or what did you select for us for our um, collective smorgasbord pick? I picked Andy Mame because I've always loved Rosalind Russell, and I I'm always looking for films Andreas has never seen because there are not many of them. Uh oh. <laughs> and so I was like, "Have you seen Andy Mame?" And then I realized I hadn't seen it. And since James is not super interested in that era, I figured he probably hadn't seen it. So there you go. And uh, I was not very familiar with it beyond the basic premise and a couple of songs from the musical edition that came about 20 years later. Well, anti-mame. So uh, let's get a bit of a rundown on the premise. And like you said, it stars uh, Rosalind Russell, who I was most familiar with when it comes to uh, His Girl Friday. Like, Mm -hmm. talk about one of the best screwball comedies of all time. So... uh, First and foremost, this is not exactly an acting vehicle, but sincerely, this was like made for Rosalind Russell. She carries the movie. She originated the role on Broadway. Oh, well, there you go. And it was written by Betty Condon and Adolph Green, who are two of the most clever writers Hollywood ever had. So what is this uh, fantastic, joyful film about? Okay, so I want to be Auntie Mame when I grow up. She's the eccentric aunt who has too much money and not enough sense and is living, uh, as we would say in the 1920s, the gay life in New York. She uh, is not in the uh, current sense of gay, but as you would use it back then. She's just all over the place into every trend, everything that's new and progressive. She's got a bunch of witty, artsy friends. She's always the peak of fashion, and there are always martinis flowing. And I just adore this character so much. So she has to take in her orphan nephew, who's a little nonplussed by everything he sees, but he's swiftly swept into her crazy world, and it follows them from about the late 1920s to shortly after World War II, so the nephew grows up during this time and is part of many of her adventures. This is a very generational film because a lot of it is watching the little nephew uh, uh, grow up. Oh my god, what's his name again? It's Patrick. Yeah, oh god, I couldn't remember his name either. He's just so (laughs) not important to the movie. How could I forget? Every (laughs) scene was... um, like every sequence is basically like her reuniting with Patrick, and it would be like, "Ah, oh, Patrick!" He's so the like, sweetest oh, kid. He's so cute and he's so <laughs> nice, and she's just doing her shtick in the background. He's like, "Whatever, I'm gonna go with this." So the film, or I guess original play as well, um, uses uh, the nephew Patrick as an excuse to leap through time. So you see him when he's he's a child, and he goes to boarding school, and when she's able to see him, uh, once school's done for the year, um, and then he gets older and older and older. And he does his uh, annual visits, or however often they are. Um, 
you see what she's up to and her own endeavors. Like, who is she with? What is she up to? How uh, recently has she lost all her money in the stock market? Or how many plays is she failing to, to star in? Like, all these different things. Um, and how she's trying to keep a smile through it all. But at the same time, she's also quite aware that things are really tough around her. Mm-hmm. Like, she... She's a very interesting person to watch, but she's also extremely exasperating in real life, I suspect, and the movie is very aware of this. That is like a list that we could do one day. What are characters that we love to watch, but we would like just bolt out of the room if we had to spend another second with them in real life? Well, I would have a dinner with Auntie Mame, and honestly, her being my aunt would be cool, but I, there are drawbacks to her life, and the movie makes that clear. Yeah. But she still finds love uh, numerous times, and that's a part of the whole thing as well, where she finds worth in uh, in the men in her life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I found Auntie Mame to be an absolute treasure throughout this whole flick. I think the one thing that I like that they did with the character they did don't always do too often with wealthy characters is no matter what's going on, she never condescends anybody. No. Mm. Like, even, even the bits where she loses all her money and she has to try to find a job, it's like, it just doesn't work because she just doesn't function in those environments. Yeah, she can't really be contained by a job. I also like how when her nephew arrives, she instantly becomes her sidekick. And that's, yeah, like, the whole thing. It. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost like she, like, went to the Macy's and purchased him. Like, uh, I'll take one of these, too. And, like, it's just, like, for her, he's, like, forever by her side. I and love she that. never begrudges raising him, either. Nope. In fact, she's like thrilled. She's like, "Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take this guy, and uh, I will make sure that he is mine, and I am like as great of a role model as I can be." That's like her only like major regrets in the film are whether or not she's a good role model for him. Whenever her, she fails, it's not necessarily I'm doing poorly. It's how do I look in this kid's eyes? And he he himself is also a real pleasure as well. Never chastises her or judges her. And the movie's so clever, and there's so much subtext, and it can be hard to pick up on, but some of it's really, really golden. Like, um, and they, they packed so much crap into that movie, so many innuendos that, um, wouldn't have passed the Hayes Code if they had been any less subtle. Like, um, there's a particular way she says the word hunt to one of her love rivals, and I apologize for the semi-cloaked language, but you know exactly what she's saying, and it's just chef's kiss, delightful. And Rosalind Russell was a treasure. Yeah, I also like in regards to her nephew, it's like she didn't remove his agency. Any kind of, any moments where he seemed to kind of stray from her influence, it was because of others and for not so great purposes. It was always for kind of some sort of like status or material gain when it was clearly not him to begin with. Mm-hmm. Also, in regards to the runtime, there wasn't a problem with the runtime, but every each of the three acts felt like their own movie. You could tell so much it had been a play, too. Yeah, especially uh, certain scenes where they would, um, they'd, uh, they'd draw back the lights and there would just be her kind of spotlighted before it fades out and goes to another scene. I was like, yep, this was definitely a play. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's so rare. That. Yeah, I do think the third act went a little bit off the rails, though. Like, I thought the humor got broader and the characters weren't as interesting. So that was kind of a fail for me, but the rest of it, like, brilliant. I think it it's not necessarily a part of the film. It's what every... I don't think most people that watch this will love the entire thing. It's just what parts work best for you and what don't. So, like, for me, I felt like the uh, 
was it the Himalayas or whatever mountain range it was? That was like a little extreme. Oh yeah, the Alps with her the, then husband. That's what it was. <laughs> right, it was the Alps. Uh, so like that was like maybe my one moment where I was like, ooh, okay. <laughs> like I'm not sure how I feel about that. Um, and I'm sure any listener at home will have their own favorites and uh, least favorite parts. But that's kind of what it is. It's almost like Forrest Gump. You pick and choose which parts work the best for you. It is a bit like Forrest Gump, you're right. A little bit. The generational aspect, how long it is, um, mm-hmm. except, uh, uh, you know, another character where maybe I wouldn't want to be friends with him in real life, but I love watching him on screen is Forrest Gump. Actually, I take that back. He went through a lot of cool stuff. Make him my bestie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, final thoughts on Anti-Mame. We would recommend it. Watch it again. How do we feel about it? It's fun. Absolutely. Go watch it and bask in the joy of Rosalind Russell. Ah, yes. Uh, I've learned I need to maybe watch more of her stuff. I've seen quite a few films already, but clearly not enough. So what we typically do at the end of our episodes is we do a random weekly recommendation. But instead, what we're going to do is first off, let our listeners know where you could find us. And secondly, recommend the films we're going to be watching for next month. But first... If you want to listen to more or chat with us, discuss your favorite films, what you thought of this month's films, where can our listeners find us, Rachel? We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the K-Cut, and we've been a little quiet lately, but there's more coming as the new year progresses. We've got a lot up our sleeves, so uh, look forward to that. But for now, we've got to look forward to some other stuff. Um, let's start off with uh, our recommendations we're going to give to one another. And if I'm not mistaken, I think... I'm doing the collective pick this month. Your guess is as good as mine. Yes, I think so. So, uh, okay. I think I've got something for that. Um, otherwise who wants to get their, uh, individual pick first? I want to give James his. Sure. Go for it. Okay. So this is from 1930 ish. It is German and it stars the incomparable Peter Lorre. Have you seen the film M? I have not, but it's one I've always like hear about. I think, A, I think you'll like it just because it's so good, but B, every film fan needs to see it. Even though it's very difficult subject matter, you gotta see it. That's Fritz Lang, right? It is Fritz Lang, yes. Alrighty. I'm excited. Oh my god, you, you don't you don't know how freaking good you just got. Wow. Uh, it's one of those films where you'd never forget your first time seeing it. Mine was in uh, in university in a lecture hall, and I was like, my goodness, this film is too, it's too good and it's too frightening for its time. Um, uh, I could give you yours next, Rachel. Sure. Okay, I don't know if you've seen this. Um, here's another one that's, uh, you know, kind of typical for me. Um, very challenging, but... Okay. I don't think there's any film quite like it. Have you ever seen Mirror by Andrei Tarkovsky? I have not. So this film is one that doesn't really have an actual narrative structure, but is one of the most fascinating, well-shot, mind-blowing, captivating, abstract experiences I've ever had with a film. There is an actual substance to it when it comes to its plot, but... We'll leave that for the episode to discuss. So uh, that that is your film. You're going to be watching Mirror. Sounds good. Alrighty, what am I going to watch? Alrighty, I'm super excited uh, for this for your selection. I decided to go back to you know the whole no budget thing, and I am going to assign you Medicine for Melancholy, which is the no budget debut of acclaimed director Barry Jenkins. 
cool. You know what's funny? Barry Jenkins is one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. I've actually like had the opportunity to like ask him about music in his film, which was like one of my favorite experiences as a cinephile. I somehow just never got around to it. So thank you. I could finally finish his filmography. I, I I'm actually nonplussed by this. It's a, it's a, it's also very fitting because next month is Black History Month, and you'll understand what I mean by that when you see it. Hey, listen, Barry Jenkins has me partially intrigued by a Lion King prequel. Not even a sequel, a prequel. That's how much I love the guy, so I'm very much looking forward to this. Thank you for that. So, for our collective pick, and I apologize in advance because I've heard this is a very taboo, screwed-up film, but is anyone familiar with the filmography of Peter Greenway? No. Only in the vaguest form. Uh, So, Peter Greenway is known for his controversial films, um, I've only heard the music for this film and the music is astounding and I've always wanted to watch this and this could be a really screwed up film to discuss and I apologize in advance if it's really disturbing, but I'm thinking of his potential magnum opus from what I've heard anyway, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover, which stars, uh, Helen Mirren, Richard Boringer and Michael Gambon. I have wanted to see that for so long since I was a teenager, probably. So this is perfect. And now you will. I've again. I've heard it's really disturbing. But Michael Nyman, who also did the score for the piano, which is like one of my favorites ever, does the score for this film. And I've listened to the soundtrack numerous times. It actually made my um, favorite um, scores list of all time. Uh, which is a little silly when you haven't actually seen the film. So I'd like to rectify that. So that's what we're going to be watching. So. To recap everything that we're going to be watching, dear listeners, for the month of February, you're going to be watching The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. Don't be twisted. That is one film. Um, you're also going to be watching M, M for Mary by uh, Fritz Lang, Medicine for Melancholy by Barry Jenkins, and finally Mirror by Andre Tarkovsky. I think we've got a hell of a lineup, guys. I think also, this they is all really start with M, except for The Collective. What the hell, guys? Uh, what do you mean? I didn't even realize uh, that. <laughs> me, me cook, me thief. It does start with that. What are you talking about? Michael uh, Gambon is in it, so. And Michael Nyman. <laughs> quick, what's a Peter Greenway film that starts with an M? Uh, you mean Peter Greenway. <laughs> oh, damn, he doesn't have a single one. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Uh, oh, well. Well, that was the K-Cut. Uh, check out the films that we discussed this episode and the ones we'll be touching upon next episode. We'll be dropping that episode early February. Otherwise, get ready. We've got some good content coming. We've got our award season stuff coming up as well uh, regarding the Academy Awards. The nominations drop, I believe, the 27th of January. So, oh, it's, it's Oscar season. Better buckle up. Uh, the average length of these films is two and a half hours to three hours, so just just a precursor. We'll uh, be getting into that when it's time. Oh, God, I'm sure we will. Uh, that was the K-Cut. Thank you so much for listening. We are now going into the L-Cut. The M-Cut. The M-Cut. Oh, it could only be the M-Cut now. 